Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan, a hematologist, medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Thanks for supporting Healthcare Unfiltered. We tackle a wide array of healthcare topics. And today, I'm going back to a very charged topic, which is the ketogenic diet and the restricted carbohydrate diet. As you recall, we've done several episodes on this, but the reason I have this episode is because of a recent paper that was published by one of my prior guests, David Feldman, and a newer guest that I will have on the show, Nick Norwitz. And pretty much the, um, the paper is literally about what we just talked about previously, which is the uh, ketogenic diet and the impact on lipids that this ketogenic diet has. And the, uh, if you recall from prior episodes, we talked about how carb-restricted diets could lead to elevated uh, LDL, at the same time, lower triglycerides and high HDL. And the co-authors I will interview today are going to go through the paper that was recently published. And we're going to go over the observations of that paper, the conclusions of that paper, the practical implications, the shortcomings, the benefits, all of these things. But it's rather important. It's rather important. There appears to be this type of phenotype of folks who go on low-carb diet that end up having very high LDL and uh, high HDL and low triglycerides. And of course, the debate has been always, well, what do you do with these uh, with these individuals? Should they actually receive statins? Should they not receive statins? All of these things. And we'll go over that in a little bit. But I thought it is rather important. This is a new development, a new paper that just came out. Well, uh, again, our goal is to report the events and let you know what's going on. And nothing better than bringing the authors themselves that wrote the paper to be on Healthcare Unfiltered. So, Dave Feldman and Nick Norwitz will be with us shortly, but before I air the episode, I'd like you to support Healthcare Unfiltered, and you can do that by going to my website, www.chadinabhan.com. You could go also to any podcast outlet, and you can rate the show, subscribe to the show, write a brief review, and refer a friend or a colleague to the show. You can also watch all of these interviews on my YouTube channel, Chadinabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate your support. And without further ado, Dave Feldman and Nick Norwitz. All right, folks. Well, uh, this should be fun uh, because I, uh, I'm going to learn uh, uh, a little bit and then I'm going to push back and challenge my guests also a little bit. On what's going on. Well, first, uh, I have Dave Feldman, uh, a recurrent uh, guest on the show now. He'll introduce himself again. And then uh, Nick Norwitz, first time on the show, but his life will forever change after this one. Uh, I mean, as, as Dave will tell him. So let's start with a little bit of introduction, and then I'll set the stage as to why I have you on. Uh, Dave, I'll, well, actually, I'll start with Nick, because he's the newbie on Healthcare Unfiltered. Nick, a little bit about you and... Um, just what you do, what you're doing, and what got you interested in nutritional research. For sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks for so, so much for having me on, Chatty. This is uh, a pleasure, and I'm very excited. Um, <clears throat> my background, uh, my academic background, is as a PhD researcher from Oxford. I did my PhD in uh, ketogenics and brain metabolism, studying Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. Uh, but because of a personal experience, 
with keto really got interested in um, lipidology. I think probably people listening might know some of Dave's background, but I had a, a parallel introduction to this field where I, you know, tried a carbohydrate restricted diet for metabolic reasons. For me, it was, um, I had very bad colitis and a ketogenic diet very much helped me, but was surprised to find that my LDL cholesterol um, shot through the roof, went from like 95 to well over 300. And I was eating a high fiber, very Mediterranean, low red meat kind of diet. So I found that very interesting. And that's kind of what introduced me to Dave's work. And ever since then, I've been uh, just so interested in this space from a uh, scientific standpoint. So I want to preface this conversation by saying I have a tendency to get really enthused and excited from a scientific perspective. And I hope nobody confuses that with... Um, uh, the perception that I'm saying, you know, this is a low risk profile, that this is nothing to worry about. I just kind of get, you know, the nerdy scientific enthusiasm. So I'm very excited about the observation we've made. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pause there and pass it off to Dave. Nick, uh, just really quick, what do you do day in and day out? Is this to do for, full time? Uh, is there oh. an element of your research that you do as well? Yeah. Um, so I'm a, a medical student, actually. I, I finished my PhD at Oxford. And now I'm a student at uh, Harvard Med. So uh, my days are mostly spent um, studying, you know, whatever we had to study. When do you, <laughs> Dermatomyositis, lupus, whatever was last week. When, when do you finish? Doing this. Uh, I just started, actually. So what ended up happening was um, I did my undergrad at Dartmouth and I was um, finishing up and I applied to fellowships for the UK and for medical school. And I, I got into HMS. Uh, and then I also got a scholarship to go to Oxford. So they let me defer. So I deferred for three years, went to my PhD, and, and now I'm back starting um, this year. So I'm actually a first year medical student. We just finished our uh, first semester. So um, yeah. Well, good luck and, and congrats. And uh, go Patriots. I'm a Patriots fan. So you better be a Patriots fan You're in Boston. I'm not, I'm not a football guy. I'm not an American football guy. I, I, I honestly, Good. sorry. Then Manchester, Manchester United? Yeah, my family's a, a, a bit big on soccer. My brother's okay. uh, actually played internationally. My first time to Oxford, I was traveling uh, with him around. So, um, and my dad's a big rugby guy, but that's great. It's kind of tangential now. Dave, uh, um, a little bit about you and, and how did you get to meet Nick? Uh, yeah, well, of course, I'm a senior software engineer, entrepreneur, uh, I went a lot more extensively into my backstory in our first podcast together, so I won't go too much into that right now. But uh, of course, you know the story. I became very obsessed with lipidology and started doing a lot of experiments um, for which I kept reporting back that data to the low-carb community. And over time, this helped develop uh, two different things, one being the lipid energy model and how much the lipid energy model, um, as it's like been growing and burgeoning, uh, would ultimately lead us to the study uh, that we've talked about a couple of times now uh, on this phenotype lean mass hyperresponders, which we'll get into in a moment. I was fortunate enough to meet Nick uh, while we were both sort of invited to work on a case study uh, with Dr. Tro. And um, we just immediately synergized. Uh, it, Nick had already had kind of his own origin story as he was just talking about now. And that already kind of, in, in the same way, we, we definitely have that commonality that our own story of how we were surprised by our cholesterol levels going up led us to dive deep into trying to understand it, trying to understand what's going on mechanistically, trying to understand what's going on uh, from a risk stratification. 
And I'll just repeat what Nick said. In fact, I'm probably more careful to say it these days than I ever have been before. You've heard me say it several times over, Chatty. While I'm cautiously optimistic with regard to a higher total in LDL cholesterol in this context of metabolic fat adaptation, which we'll be talking about, I'm probably spending more time emphasizing the cautious and less on the optimistic side because we really don't know until we get the data in as to what the true level of risk uh, actually is in this context. Great. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot, Dave, we've had you a couple of times and we've had other folks on the show. We've talked about the keto diet, the low carb model. So I know I'm going to try not to rehash some of the uh, other things we've talked about, although we probably need to level set a little bit as we describe uh, the, uh, this. But really the reason my motivation to having you on is a paper that you are both co-authors on, and I believe Nick is the first author, and um, that was uh, published, came out some sometime in November. Uh, and for context, we're taping this uh, late December, 2021. So uh, I wanted to talk about the paper first uh, into um, what led to this paper, wh how was the paper designed, um, what was the what were the findings of the paper? What are the clinical implications of these findings? What are the shortcomings and so on? And then, what's next? Uh, because obviously, your paper did make a lot of headlines on social media, where there are a lot of people who were completely opposed to it, a lot of people who were pro, all of these things. So let's let's go over it because I always feel Twitter is a short format; you can never really discuss that. So uh, who wants to take on telling us how did this paper come about? And, um, um, you know, we'll, we'll split uh, all of these, uh, these items. I think you deserve to start, Dave, maybe back in 2017 when you hypothesized what became this paper. Uh, sure. Well, I, I'll, I'll really kind of give more of the 50,000 foot overview and really hand it back off to Nick. But let's kind of first talk about what I observed what Nick would later observe and what so many of us in the low carb community have observed that it's not typically just LDLs uh, going up on a low carb diet, but particularly in the context of what seems to be otherwise metabolically healthy individuals. Um, I'm more metabolically healthy than my sister and my dad, which I mentioned before, and they started a ketogenic diet around the same time I did, but they did not see this pronounced increase of LDL. We would also see this combination of HDL cholesterol, the so-called good cholesterol going up and triglycerides going down. And, and I mean, in a very pronounced way, all three of these uh, in, in a much more exceptional, what I like to call triad, a lipid triad. Uh, and this seemed to be fairly ubiquitous. This seemed to be uh, common among the low carb community, particularly as this sort of new wave of people would come into keto who weren't already coming from a, from a health challenged state. So as you know, the first wave, if you will, of Atkins were folks that would just try anything to try to lose weight um, and often already had other underlying conditions that they were dealing with. As keto became more popular, you, you were finding a lot more people like myself who I wasn't really severe type 2 diabetic. I was just sort of pre-diabetic, but was willing to try not just low carb, but literally going ketogenic, which is to say really, really low carb and therefore becoming fat adapted. So I would see this pattern. And this led to some early beginnings of, you know, how I think of the energy model, which is, you know, the, the, the elevator pitch, uh, which I go into much more detail in that prior podcast, but the elevator pitch is, look, if you're going to get powered more by fat, you need more carrier proteins. And that's not just albumin, which a lot of people don't hear much about, but a very famous 
carrier protein, which a lot of people do hear about, which is ApoB. And that means that there could be a reason why you'd see higher LDL cholesterol and as it turns out, higher HDL cholesterol. So without unpacking that too much, that explains the triad. And in 2017, that's when I said, you know, I, I now really see this in the most pronounced way in those folks who seem to be the leanest and the seemingly most metabolically fit. They oftentimes uh, are athletic. They oftentimes are like runners and cyclists and so forth. They seem to have the most dramatic increases in LDL. And, and Chatty, for anybody who's not yet heard, I know you're aware of this. We're not just talking about like an LDL of 150 or 180. We're talking about LDLs of 300, 400, 500, et cetera. And so I termed this at the time lean mass hyperresponders because the term hyperresponder was already there before for people who see a high LDL after going on a ketogenic diet. And I said lean mass hyperresponder and then set those three cut points. And to my surprise, um, there is way more uh, lean mass hyperresponders than I thought. And now we have a Facebook group of somewhere around like 7,500. So flash, flash, flash forward to this year, 2021, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we were getting put together, Nick and I were being put together to complement this case series. And that's when uh, Nick uh, came on board, who himself is a very pronounced lean mass hyperresponder. So Nick, t tell us then about, thanks Dave, what, what, what's, the, what, what's the paper about? Before I get into that, I'm just going to rehash what Dave said. You said 50,000 foot view. I want to zoom out and go 100,000 foot just for a moment to kind of set the stage for, for what we found. Um, I'm going to you know, do that with, with the two framing things. First and foremost, um, I just want to talk about the risk profile of most patients now who are at risk for um, cardiovascular disease. And that over time, what we've seen actually, you know, LDL levels are, are stable or actually dropping. There was a beautiful paper by Peter Libby, um, but recently describing the changing landscape of atherosclerosis and basically making the point, you know, LDL levels, they are stable yet or continue to drop with these new innovations in pharmacotherapy, like PCSK9 inhibitors. They're now like doing, you know, gene editing on monkeys to lower their LDL. Anyway, that aside, the risk profile that predominates is um, atherogenic dyslipidemia. So, you know, when you get a lipid panel, you get really three numbers back on a standard panel, the LDL, which people tend to focus on the most, but also the HDL and the triglycerides. And really it's important to look at those three in context, but what you often see in most people at risk is LDL that's normal or even sometimes low um, with very low HDL or just low HDL and high triglycerides. That's the definition of atherogenic uh, dyslipidemia, that high triglycerides and low HDL. And um, what Dave was, was hypothesizing back in 2017 with this lean mass hyperresponder phenotype was that he was seeing people with this astronomically high LDL, which already is kind of going away from the standard pattern of risk now, but then the opposite profile of atherogenic dyslipidemia. Instead of having low HDL and high triglycerides, really high HDL and low triglycerides forming this really odd triad that you really don't see anywhere else. And in fact, the cut point Dave chose back in 2017 were very extreme. So the cut points for what is colloquially known as a lean mass hyperresponder are LDL of equal to or above 200 milligrams per deciliter, HDL above 80, and triglycerides below 70. To fit any one of those cut points is very rare in isolation. So, so to fit all three at the same time in union 
by chance would be like basically negligible. Um, so if people are actually fulfilling those cut points by chance, then there's maybe something mechanistic going on, on underneath. That would be the proposal. And we'll get into the lipid energy model uh, later. But what then Dave was kind of observing was another paradox uh, or seeming paradox, which is that it's the leaner athletic people that, at least in his observation, tended to be the ones with this jump in LDL, which is kind of interesting if you think about, okay, LDL is bad cholesterol, which means a jump in LDL is an unhealthy response, right? So if this observation is true, why is the lean, healthy people that are having to jump into bad cholesterol? That kind of seems weird. So anyway, this was all just you know empiric observation um, until the publication of this paper. And what we did- But there, um, there, you, you were only seeing these in the setting of low carb, right? In the yes, setting. yes. In, in the, so, so it will be the lean, healthy people who then go low carb. Right. And, and, and then develop this profile, whereas before their LDLs would be more normal. And we actually observed that in this paper. So what we found was when we took, you know, a group of people who were... Before, um, you, before you tell me what you found, I want to go through the method, methods of the yes. paper, how you yes. got there. So like, um, because we're going to go over the results. I want to explain to listeners, um, how did you conduct, what's the methodology to get to the results? How did you, what were the methods? What did you actually do? Yeah. Well, for this preliminary study, it was actually pretty simple. We, um, Dave had a standing survey where people would report their, um, you know, their lipid panels and their intake, their BMI. And then we did an analysis on that survey. Now, obviously, that's limited in that it's survey data, um, which is typically, you know, thought of as being relatively unreliable. So we did have certain checks in place um, to, you know, suggest that, the data might be more reliable. The data that didn't look reliable, we got rid of, and we had you know code that automated that, so there wouldn't be um, you know our bias uh, employed. And then what we did, and and I think this was really important, was engage basically in what's known as a hypothesis naive exploratory analysis, where rather than you know go through the data and try to mold it to fit our you know confirmation bias, we basically just told the computer, you know, pick out the variables that are the best predictors of LDL change, um, which was a methodology that well suited the sort of data we had. Because in order to get a finding using this method, this approach, this hypothesis, naive exploratory analysis on the given data, in order to see any sort of correlations, basically you would have to have like a massive coup among participants where like, oh, you know, the leaner ones are reporting their triglycerides, HDL and LDL a little bit differently along a continuum to the people of higher BMI, which seems quite unlikely. So I, I think that the, the methodology was well suited to the data collected, but we did only have survey data at hand. And that was, was actually kind of necessary for this approach, one, because of expense, but um, two, because... This isn't so common a phenomenon that you can just go around and like pick people. So to get a cohort of sufficient size, we had like about a thousand respondents. You do need to kind of, you know, uh, pool from greater distance, so to speak. Uh, so that was a yeah. Approach. Dave, since you created the survey um, that you were asking, uh, you said there's the Facebook of 7,000 folks. So you actually send the survey to the, to your Facebook or you just announce a survey and can you maybe go really high level, how many questions in the survey, the type of questions. And um, 
And uh, I liked what Nick mentioned, you know, every survey, obviously there's, you know, you're not gonna have access to the medical charts. So you, if somebody tells you my LDL is 400, they probably, I can't tell, but I presume they're not really faxing you or emailing you the actual lipid profile. Maybe they are, I don't know, but um, tell us about the survey, the questions, and how did you get, who did you survey? Like, how did you get reach? How did you reach those folks? Well, I, I announced it basically everywhere I could. So it, certainly in my presence on social media, uh, the blog, on Twitter, uh, as you know, a lot of people follow me on Twitter across the spectrum, though granted that's going to be predominantly more people who are low carb and probably some even further predominance of people who are, uh, you know, with this triad or even themselves lean mass hyperresponders. We have the lean mass hyperresponder Facebook group, but we also have just a general cholesterol code Facebook group made the announcement on both of those as well. And so for having a thousand participants, I actually didn't think that there would be that many lean mass hyperresponders given just you know how broad it was. It actually made it uh, advantageous for us to look at this data set once we knew we would have a um, hundred-ish something lean mass hyperresponders. Because at that point in time, we we're like, okay, well, this is enough data for us to look at in a meaningful way with the full acknowledgement that it is limited in the fact that it's an internet survey. But our, our third missing colleague, uh, who's definitely part of our triad, which is Adrian Sotomoda, uh, he is the one who pioneered um, you know, our analyses in many respects, who initiated this uh, hypothesis naive version, but on top of that, who would explain much more eloquently than I'm about to, that the advantage that you can look at, and epidemiologists will point to when you do have enough data, is that when you start seeing the curves and they seem to have a lot of correlation stepwise. That's, that's, that gives a lot more stronger uh, indication of correlation as opposed to like dividing between one group or another because there can be more selection bias if it's like, oh, people who have high LDL and seem otherwise metabolically healthy are, are either in this bucket or they're in this other bucket of everybody who's not that. Well, if instead you see a stepwise change along with other variables to where it has a very tight correlation, um, I know I'm kind of trying to layman person this up, but I think you follow me. That's where you have to start saying, look, could everybody who answered this survey be colluding to have that level of, you know, of, of distinctive correlation in these curves? Probably not, right? And that's why we look to see just how strong those curves actually are. And uh, that's, that's, you know, part of how we were looking at this data. No, good point. But, but um like what kind of questions did you ask? Just you asked like, give me the number of yeah. LDL you have, number of it, like you just, were they just pointed, like how many questions were they? And uh, did you have any access to the actual reports of what they were reporting, even in a subset of them? Uh, off the top of my head, I would say that, that I think something around 15 to 20 questions. Okay. We would ask them about what their lipid levels were from just before the diet, uh, they were on and then what their lipid levels are now to whatever diet they were on. We excluded, uh, I want to say around 40% of participants because unless they reported uh, as one of the other things we're asking is how many grams of carbs they were having per day, unless they reported 130 or less, we didn't even consider them as far as being on a carb restricted diet. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, it, is, it was 130, right? Yeah, it was 130. We had a lot of different cut points uh, or exclusion criteria. I think we did cut out 40 to 50 
percent of people because we wanted to make sure the data were as reliable as possible. Um, and it was actually on the table just because you brought it up, Chatty, to do a validation cohort and ask for um, you know lipid data uh, from the labs because that would have been one option. We didn't end up going that route just because of what Dave said. It like when the results panned out, it, it seemed very unlikely that we could possibly get them without a massive coup. I mean, just like take as an example, just to kind of um, enforce what we're saying. Like imagine three people, BMI is 21, 23, 26, right? And in order to, you know, get a correlation along a continuum, you'd have to have the person with the lowest BMI, you know, report the highest LDL, highest HDL, lowest triglyceride, person in the middle report something intermediate to the person on the end. That's three people. Now, could they do that, that by chance? Yes, maybe, probably not. Again, it would take some degree of coordination. We had 548. And when they look at the p-values for all these different correlations, BMI, LDLC change, HDL, you know, BMI, all these different things, the p-values were like 10 to the negative 16th, with really tight confidence intervals. So uh, we talked it over with our team, with some statisticians. And at that point, it just seemed like a little bit of overkill and kind of unnecessary. But it's also I think that would have been a valid methodology. It's also worth pointing out, Chatty, that that this was in combination with the original case series I was just mentioning. And the case series, of course, we did have validated uh, not only blood work, but also blood work in how they arrived to the lean mass hyperspondor uh, status, as well as the intervention uh, of added carbohydrates and how that would then change their uh, cholesterol levels in kind. So at least that group further established what is true in, in a very distinctive way with, with very um, validated blood work as well as genetic uh, confirmation as well. Okay, so Nick, uh, tell us the number. I think you already alluded to the number of uh, folks that responded and um, um, tell, tell us uh, some of the results that, uh, that came out of the uh, survey and the responses you received. For sure. So yeah, we had a 548 um, final included participants. And what we observed was, I mean, two main things uh, in the original, you know, hypothesis naive exploratory analysis, that there was a strong inverse correlation between BMI and LDL change. Basically that it was the leaner people having the larger increases in LDL. And in addition, that... Um, triglyceride to HDL ratio was inversely associated with LDL change. So it was the people with the, again, opposite profile to atherogenic dyslipidemia, the higher HDL, the lower triglycerides, even before starting the diet. So they're metabolically healthy before starting the diet or on the diet that was associated with larger LDL change. So basically it was the lean metabolically healthy people, the leaner and more metabolically healthy you were, the larger your LDL change for people who want to look at the paper that you know, is really, I think, nicely demonstrated in uh, figure two. We have a 3D bar graph where you can see as you go along the X and the Z axes, as you go down in BMI or down in triglyceride to HDL ratio, the LDL just keeps them going up and up and up, the LDL change. So, you know, for people in the um, lowest quartile for BMI and LDL change, uh, BMI and triglyceride to HDL ratio, I think it was the mean... LDL change was 135 milligrams per deciliter, which is massive. Dave, these are folks who before, before they went on a low carb diet, before they went on a ketogenic diet or low car or carb restricted diet, probably is more scientifically uh, a better a better description. Their LDL 
uh, and the triglyceride to HDL ratio. So, so the triglycerides, their HDL and LDL were, were not that high. Like I presume you had, you asked them for their baseline numbers and you saw that the changes in LDL, HDL triglycerides were after they went on the low carb uh, diet. And how long did they go on the low carb diet before you started seeing these changes? So of course it varied based on what the participant reported themselves. I don't remember the uh, the mean right offhand. The mean between tests was there seven hundred and something days. Right. So close to um, so yeah. two, two years. Right. Now yeah, now it's like now I want to I want to tack on just a couple of things to what Nick said. So it's worth emphasizing those those two correlates. The first one is uh, triglyceride to HDL ratio in the prior reported levels, the prior LDL. So that is ver was very predictive towards resulting LDL change. So if you were presumably more metabolically healthy, and again, we caveat all of these with presumably in that, you know, for example, we didn't have blood pressure numbers or other, other things along those lines. But generally speaking, yeah, if you have a uh, low triglyceride to HDL ratio, you typically are uh, much more likely to be uh, considerably metabolically healthy, but with the usual caveats. And the other is the, the uh, BMI as resulting in the final data. So if your BMI was lower alongside whatever your lipid profile was, your LDL tended to be higher. But here's one, here's one other very fascinating thing about it, which is that actually the LDL in the first, in the very first lipid profile between lean mass hyperresponders and non-lean mass hyperresponders was nearly identical. In fact, the lean mass hyperresponders, if I'm not mistaken, it was slightly less. Actually, it was, I think the non-lean mass hyperresponders like 134 milligrams per deciliter lean mass hyperresponders was 132. I think the p-value was like 0.85. So not significantly different, but just as a kind of po po pokey point. Yeah, I think it was a little bit lower in the LMHR. So, so think about that, Chatty. You, you have two groups of people that all you know is what their LDL levels are before they start this diet. And then all of a sudden you see in one group of people, the most pronounced, and I mean substantially uh, increased levels of LDL. What are two things that you could pick out that you think would be predictive of that change? And we think our paper provides some, at least some strong hypothesis building as to what that would likely be. And that's, that's why we're pretty excited about it. So Nick, you found these findings, and I think Dave was alluding that you, you're starting to think of hypotheses as to why that may be, like the BMI inversely correlated with the LDL, mm -hmm. uh, as well as with the triglycerides to HDL ratio, which are the metabolically healthy. A, what are some of the theories that you came up with? And then maybe Dave could uh, try to... Uh, start outlining some of the shortcomings as you were looking at the paper, what are the drawbacks? And then we'll go back and forth into what the practical implications. For sure. I, I would say that um, this paper does not actually delve into the lipid energy model. That is our next or one of our next projects. Actually, we were working on it most of today, but um, we can get into that. I'm not sure if we want to go through. There was a case series Dave alluded to, which had some interesting findings. And then maybe we can talk about the limit energy model. It just wasn't covered in this paper, just to be just to be clear. Are these findings that led to the hypothesis of the lipid energy model? I, I may have missed that. Uh, no, the lipid, the lipid energy model has been basically in development for the last like five, six years. Right. I mean, I would say 
the way I would describe the story of it up to this point in time is it's been something that I've kind of made graphics on. I've done presentations on, as you know, I've interviewed with people like Peter Atia discussing it then, but in 2020 and 2021, a lot more has been coming out in the literature that I think has been supportive of the lip energy model. And, um, I've been so fortunate to have Nick Norwitz and Adrian Sotomoda who have connected to, and the three of us have been working hard on putting together a paper for it. And I think that it's really supercharged. It's really like advanced the progress of it, which is why we're excited to get a paper to it together. I, I think if, if I'm going to give you the quick pitch version, which is sort of what I was saying from before, I think in the case of these folks, what we would hypothesize again with the emphasis, that's a hypothesis is that those folks who tend to be leaner, such as Nick, they're going to be more likely to see this pronounced increase in LDL because they're trafficking more fat in circulation. They're doing that because they're powered much more by fat. And therefore, uh, there's going to be, again, more need for uh, carrier proteins to make that possible. So, so that's, the, um, that's part of the theory of the observation that you made that because you're leaner, you need more fat to carry on. I mean, is I guess I'm trying to understand yeah. when you saw the observation. So the general observation of lean mass hyperresponders and the lipid energy model precede this paper. This paper was now formalizing the observation that we see this lipid triad, the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype, um, for which we already have ideas that we're going to formalize in another paper. But the basic idea, the hypothesis is that for lean people who are metabolically healthy in a carbohydrate-restricted state, to supply energy, the energy they need, a lot of it is trafficked um, globally by triglyceride-rich lipoproteins. One is VLDL, so very low-density um, lipoprotein. So you trap, you basically you have your liver. Um, actually, you can start at your adipocytes, your fat tissue. You know, when you're burning fat, you're releasing these free fatty acids into your bloodstream. They're being sucked up by your heart, by your muscle tissue, and also by your liver. Then your liver will repackage these free fatty acids into triglycerides, put them on VLDL, ship them back out. And then the VLDL are turned over by this really critical protein. This is at the center of the lipid energy model, lipoprotein lipase. Um, and then the fatty acids will go into adipocytes. They'll then flux through to skeletal muscles and go directly to skeletal muscles. And what happens when you turn over VLDL by lipoprotein lipases, VLDL and part of their lineage, they turn into LDL, which then hang around in the bloodstream for longer than the VLDL. And then in the remodeling of the surface of the VLDL, you actually increase your HDL cholesterol. So these VLDL, they're, they're rich in triglycerides. And when the LPL, lipoprotein lipase enzyme, breaks them down, those triglycerides drop. So that's point one of the triad. LDL goes up because VLDL will decay into LDL. And if there's more VLDL secretion, more LDL, but in the process, surface components from the VLDL actually go on to HDL, which serves as an acceptor particle. So then you get this triad of low triglycerides because they're being pulled out of the, the VLDL, the high LDL, and the high HDL. And so basically the triad, the magnitude of the triad should go hand in hand with the degree of um, lipoprotein lipase mediated VLDL turnover in the periphery. That's what we'd predict. Um, Dave, anything you want to anything you want to add to the hypothesis that Nick outlined? 
No, I thought you did a great job. The only thing I would tweak, uh, Nick, is I do think some amount of cholesterol esters from the VLDL turnover will end up in the HDL pool, but that's like the only thing that I would I would tweak, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but bot bottom line is HDL in many contexts metabolically can almost serve as sort of a rough proxy of lipoprotein lipase activity. Uh, again, roughly and in that specific context. And, and that's why we believe that you see that pronounced level of increase, the more lean mass hyperresponder somebody is. So once again, you know, those cut points that Nick mentioned earlier, 280, 70, you find that there actually are some who are even more lean mass hyperresponder than that, where for example, their LDL might be 300 or 400. And guess what? They also tend to have typically even higher HDL. We've seen HDL in the 100, you know, 120, 150 even, and oftentimes triglyceride much lower than 70, such as like, you know, 50 or 60 or something like that. And my guess is, Chatty, you probably by this point in time have seen uh, some of these lipid profiles yourself, given how common this is uh, becoming uh, in the community, which is why we need to know, you know, a lot more about the risk profile right. as well. So, so basically what the paper is doing in a high level, I want to try to summarize this for listeners, is that you took a bunch of folks, uh, 500 plus, who are on low-carb diet, restricted diet. You have their numbers of the cholesterol. You have the, all of them received less than 130 or 150 grams of uh, carbs a day, right? That's what they yeah, were. Yeah, less than 130. Most were much less. I think median yeah. was 20. Right. So most were very low carb. Not very low. And what you've observed, high LDL, high HDL, low triglycerides, and you saw that these inversely correlating with the body mass index. So these are folks that are lean, but they still have high LDL and so on. Any other observation from the paper? And then we'll go into what that means. Yeah, let, let me add one more thing, because we'll make our mutual friend, Ethan Weiss, happy by explaining this next part, because this is kind of important. So a lot of folks are going to say, hey, that's great that you've helped to identify lean mass hyperresponders. I'm not comfortable being a lean mass hyperresponder, for which we absolutely can understand that that's where they're coming from, right? There's going to be many people who are comfortable. It's going to be many people who are not comfortable. Again, that's where the vast majority of um, existing lipidologists and cardiologists, that's where they're going to stand is, is that there should be steps that are taken to do something about it. In our paper, because of what we see with Dr. Tro's patients, those patients were refusing pharmacological solutions. They did not want to go on cholesterol-lowering medication. And so as part of what Dr. Tro would um, have them consider is that they could, in fact, reintroduce 50 to 100 carbs per day. Uh, and in doing so, would we see, as would be predicted by the lipid energy model, that indeed their LDL would drop substantially. And that's exactly what we would see. And it's, it's been quite substantial. Uh, there's, there was a lot more than we were able to even get into our case study by the point of publication, but of course we have five cases. Um, and Nick could speak a lot more to the specificity of those cases. He worked much more in that area, but I emphasize this because um, this, this should be a paper that I would hope a lot of folks who are concerned about this profile, or just for that matter, the hyper response in general, seeing a high LDL as a result of going on a ketogenic diet might feel that this might offer some possibility uh, for a potential solution just by bringing in a bit more carbs to uh, take it back down again. Do we know why these folks were refusing uh, cholesterol lowering agents? Do we have any, like, were the survey, was there, were they afraid of something? Is there any, anything? 
the majority of them just wanted to experiment with the lifestyle approaches first, as opposed to starting pharmacotherapy. So, you know, in their perspective, if I can just add a sweet potato to my diet, rather than taking a medication for the rest of my life, why wouldn't I? I can maintain a low carb diet. I can maintain my good triglycerides, HDL, and I just get to eat a sweet potato instead of having a statin. I mean, the one guy literally added a sweet potato's worth of carbs. His LDL dropped from 665 to 185. That's a drop of 480. And we also know, and I don't know if this is relevant to these individuals' choices since I wasn't their healthcare provider, but um, from other lean mass hyperresponders that you know, the medications won't have as potent an effect as reintroducing carbohydrates. Me and Dave were just talking two days ago to a MD, PhD, lean mass hyperresponder attending at Mass General who tried a statin as a lean mass hyperresponder, and it really didn't do much. It did so little that he just decided it's not even worth it. So um, the medications at, you know, at this degree of LDL increase, for whatever reason, don't appear to be that impactful. I have heard rumors that um, azetamide might be more potent than statins in this population, but right now that's all just hearsay. So I think for these individuals, I know one tried a statin and was intolerant. I think most of them just wanted to experiment with uh, lifestyle interventions first um, and found it was sufficient for them. And Dave, that's really that, that's really what led to the other study that we talked about in the previous show, that you want to see whether the high LDL in the subset of patients that are, you're calling low mass hyperresponders or lean mass hyperresponders, whether there's any um, atherosclerotic heart disease with continued observation. So that's really the subject of the other study that we talked about, right? Yeah, and that one's of course ongoing. Uh, we I announced it in September. I think we started scanning in October. So there's like a six month recruitment process. By the way, if you don't mind, I'm going to fit in a plug. If anybody is themselves a lean mass hyperresponder um, and would be interested in participating in this study, uh, just go to citizensciencefoundation.org/study. Uh, like I said, it's by the time you air this, there'll probably still be another three months of recruitment still ongoing. So let's uh, go. I'm going to have you put your critical hat on your own study because uh, there are no perfect studies. I'm going to always stand by that. This does not mean the studies are not valid. Just unfortunately, science is never perfect. Despite the imperfection of science, I've always argued we still have to take care of patients and make recommendations despite that. I guess uh, the the first criticism I heard, I heard a couple of criticism, uh, criticisms, and I want you to try to provide your own critical appraisal of your own paper. But one of the criticisms I heard is that this lean mass hyperresponder thing is something that you guys invented. There's no such a thing in science that is called lean mass hyperresponder. It is a term that was invented on Facebook. Your response. <laughs> Dave, take this one. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, this, this of course, you could also say about metabolic syndrome. It's, it's. There's a recognition of patterns, and somebody puts a name on this pattern, and then that becomes a means by which to advance study on the pattern. So take take metabolic syndrome. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with all the five criteria, right? It's two of those are atherogenic dyslipidemia. So it's it's typically triglycerides, and they have arbitrary cut points. Triglycerides of I believe 150 and higher. HDL of, I think, under 40, uh, but also is high blood pressure, uh, high glucose, I think glucose that's above 100, and um, uh, waist to hip ratio. And, and again, all of these were observed, reported. Uh, they, I think it originally started Syndrome X or changed to Syndrome X at some point and then changed back, but 
the point is that's exactly how science works as I understand it to be, is it particularly if you have a combination of something uh, like atherogenic lipidemia, then you put a name to it and for sure somebody you know, was the first to name it, whatever it's being called. Uh, and that's where it emerges. And this paper is basically our way by which to uh, even further um, elucidate what it is that we mean by it beyond just the blog post from 2017. Uh, okay, so let's go other other elements that you look at your paper and say, well, this is these are certain things, because I, I think one of the other major criticisms, and then I'll, those are the two major criticisms I see, and then I want you to do the whole thing. The other major criticism I see is that, or I hear about, is whenever you, whatever you, you say, or whatever the paper that you just published, it is going to become more of a, a weapon in the statin deniers and people who really want any other excuse not to take a statin while there are so much evidence that statin uh, statins will reduce the risk of heart attacks and, and and so on and i think me and you and ethan went through that in the other podcast but but you know that's really that you know you're saying that this is not something to worry about and that's really the concern that people have you know before i answer that because i would like to answer it i'd like uh, I think Nick has something he'd probably want to say to this as well. So I think it'd be cool if both of us. Sure, of course. This Go ahead, Nick. I mean, I was actually going to look for like the, you know, lines in the paper where we basically say that's not the case. Where like the paper does not say that to any stretch of the imagination. So to use this as a weapon to justify the safety of high LDL, when we continually say the paper that, you know, this paper is not about risk and the conservative approach would still be to approach lipid lowering therapy. And here's a way to actually lower your LDL we're demonstrating with lifestyle change is just a perversion of what the paper is actually saying. Um, and in addition to that, I, I honestly think that, you know, the, the statin denier movement, it's like, it's already there. And for the lean mass hyperresponders who are actually on the fence, about what to do. I think a lot of them, the default is, you know, there isn't research on me. I'm a unique, you know, I, I'm a part of a unique population. So in order to be convinced to take a medication because first do no harm, right? You should only apply, you know, data in the population in which it was studied. Then I want more data on me before I am convinced to take a statin or PCS canon or, or whatever. And so what we're really doing or what Dave has really done quite incredibly by raising money for this subsequent study on risk is trying to provide those data to better inform lean mass hyperresponder patients about what they should do. Because, you know, yes, ideally, all things being equal, I, you know, I think a lot of LMHR would actually love to just add a, you know, a sweet potato to their diet and reverse their phenotype. But the fact of the matter is, and I don't think people fully appreciate that, there are a lot of people that aren't in a position to do that. A lot of people who are using ketogenic low-carb diets therapeutically, very low-carb diets for epilepsy, neurological diseases, neurodegenerative diseases, inflammatory bowel diseases. And for them, extreme carbohydrate restriction is therapeutic. Adding back the carbs doesn't really work, nor do the medications necessarily work, or they might be intolerant. So they're really on the fence about like, they're not comfortable with their high LDL. They don't know what to do, but they don't really have really great information because that population hasn't been studied on 
how high their risk really is to inform their decision and to inform their discussion with their physician. And so I think this paper is extremely important because I think it's dangerous not to study these individuals. And now getting just, oh, you can see I'm getting a little bit emotional on this topic because I am one of these you know, people. I think for a long time, uh, the population has been told, you're not real, you don't exist. This must be some sort of genetic fluke. Um, and it's a phenotype that's right on everybody's nose. So what this paper is really trying to do is just put lean mass hyperresponders on the map and say, this is real. This deserves to be studied, not only for the purpose of the individual patients and their you know, patient right, but also just because of all it can tell us about lipidology and risk. I mean, this is a, basically objectively, I mean, I guess it is technically subjective, but a fascinating phenotype. Wherever you stand on the LDL issue, this paper is not talking about that. This paper is observing something that is fascinating to the point that you can drop LDL 480 milligrams per deciliter with a freaking sweet potato. Like, how is that just not cool from a scientific perspective? And I just hope we can all like get together behind the fact that this is interesting and study it and in a scientific manner. I, I guess that's my two cents on that. I'm gonna pass it back over to Dave. Yeah, so definitely to round back to uh, statin therapy. I need, I need to emphasize this as strongly as I ever can. And Chatty, I know you've been following me a while. I know that you probably know this to not be hyperbole when I say this. I think that I say this is not medical advice more than any private individual I know on Twitter. Uh, like it's, there's nowhere in which I try to emphasize that I'm a medical professional or anything of the like, I usually am saying exactly the opposite. But that said, I want to do my best, even in my most defensive position for when I feel like I'm putting forth the nuance, to try to reach for any level of a credible argument that could be made, even if it's coming from folks who I feel like won't change their mind at all. And so in that regard, in that regard, even when I'm you know, getting hammered over and over again from some folks who have sort of a construct of me that I feel like is a bit much of a straw man. That said, I do try even more than I ever have before to emphasize why it is that there is uncertainty here. It's why we're doing the study. And I do want people to work with their doctor. It's why I said earlier uh, that I'm putting more focus on the cautious and less on the optimistic because before, when I had like, you know, a few hundred followers and I could pontificate on these things and I could say, hey, this looks a lot like reverse atherogenic dyslipidemia, this profile. That is still true, that it does look a lot like reverse atherogenic dyslipidemia, but does that have potential, um, you know, ramifications if I'm saying it without further matching it with additional gravity? Potentially, in which case, that's why I want to put more effort than I ever have before on. I want people to work with their doctors. I want to emphasize I'm not making recommendations on going on or off uh, cholesterol medication. And as you know, I took uh, extra steps in the last conversation we had with Ethan uh, to put forward that at any given time uh, with my own health and my own risks, all options are on the table. There's no, there's no medication that I would say is off the table, particularly given as whatever my context is that changes, uh, as Nick was just mentioning, I would, I would care. And so we're in a lot of uncertainty now. If people want to take into account what the existing literature would say, what all the existing organizations would say that rec make recommendations on heart health and what your target lipid levels are, it's absolutely something I would understand. 
uh, they're taking that consideration in mind and not something I would actively discourage by any means. This is more a research endeavor than anything else. But that said, with, with all of that said, we need to go get the data. I feel more urgency than I ever have before, Chatty. I, I just speaking as one human to another. We can't keep sitting around on this. We need to find out just what level of risk there is, if there is, and how much. We, we've got to get it. I think it's a, it's a certainly a reasonable uh, question to ask, and, and I see both sides and, and, and so on. Uh, and I'll, I'll give that to you, Dave. I think, um, you, you know, I've, I've been doing this for a long time, and I, I think I consider myself a reasonable moderator. You certainly are very calm, cool, and collected, uh, although uh, even in the heat of the moment, you're able to uh, step back and answer questions without being very... Um, uh, you don't get emotional easily. So I, I, that actually is always uh, very good and appreciated. <laughs> um, so so, so let, um, you know, in the last 15 minutes, what I want to talk about is uh, maybe what have you seen the reception of the paper? Um, you know, like, you know, uh, the paper came out and, uh, you know, whether social media, not social media, good, bad and ugly, I guess. Uh, maybe we'll take one observation from Nick, one observation from Dave. Well, um, Chetty, I have the benefit of being able to like be distracted, I guess you could say, <laughs> by medical school most of the time. And, and that's the community in which I've been talking about this paper with my peers and with my professors, even more so on social media. And what's unique about that is, you know, the, the social media, especially Twitter space around this paper is very charged. People come into it, you know, and looking at it through a certain lens, whereas, when I talk about this research to, you know, other Harvard medical students, my professors, my, my preceptors at the hospital, most of them are naive to this phenomenon. And um, in that context, I've been very pleased to note that people's reactions are what personally I think they should be, which is maybe concern, but interest. Universally like, wow, that's interesting whether I bring it to cardiologists, whether I bring it to first year med students, it's like, this is weird. This is niche, this is interesting. I really just wanna know what's going on. And that's the reception I've seen, genuine interest and, you know, and, and, and wanting to see how this story later develops and wanting to know a little bit more about the mechanisms that might be going on behind the scene, because like I keep saying, it's interesting. Dave, what, what has been the reception in your, in your world? The reception has been Generally amazing. I have really appreciated all of the great comments. Um, I will say, of course, there have been some who've been critical, but I would like to also say in many respects, some of the criticisms were valid. Uh, things that we could have changed or tweaked with the wording that's you know now being considered for the drafts that we're doing. I can, I can uh, personally call out Michael Mindrum. Mindrum. Uh, Midrum. I think Midrum, I yeah. always put an end there. I don't know why I do. It's I know, I know. He was great, and he had he had he had like a single comment on a single word change that really like nailed exactly what we kind of wanted to say anyway. It was just an otherwise uh, in the final sentence, which will be there probably by the time you air this. Um, but the 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 one thing that I'm very proud of uh, that I'd been literally talking about for years before this happened was. And Chatty, you know this because you and I have chatted about it several times before this point, is the importance of transparency. And I'm just, I'm very proud that even with our uncorrected draft, we immediately put out all of the data and code. 
And so there were lots of people that as part of the feedback process were finding things that um, they brought to our attention that I'm glad they brought to our attention so that we could address them directly. Because to me, that's, that's good science. It, you know, it goes back to fourth grade that when your science teacher says, show me the work. Um, I feel like showing the work is something we need to be doing a lot more of. And in that regard, I'm, I'm just, I'm thankful because in, I feel as though the degree of reception and how people are providing that feedback loop, it's only going to make our process better. It's only going to make our work stronger. So, so the paper that I read and was posted is not in the final format. It's still like, in, it's, this was online, I presume, and it's coming in print in January or, or what, what was that? Yeah, um, the American Society of Nutrition, which is the organization affiliated with the journal in which we published, they have an interesting practice of when you get the paper accepted, they put on the, um, and you know, you respond to the reviewers and stuff, the unedited copy online immediately, but the accepted unedited copy. Um, and then there's a, a period during which you have the typesetting in the review. So, you know, the actual final version with the uh, graphical abstract and everything is going to go probably online in mid-January. So probably prior to the time that, that this goes up. But the uh, uh, original version that went out um, will be subject to a little bit of change, which is fantastic because this has gotten a lot of attention. And um, like Dave said, comments from, from Michael really help. You know, we, we try to be as precise as possible in our, our wording, but when you have not just, you know, five eyes on it, but 20,000, then people pick up things and make suggestions for improvements that then you actually get the chance to implement before the final copy. So, um, almost yeah. like a preprint type of thing. And it is a preprint, basically. It, it, in Dave's case, almost 60,000 uh, people, that's 120,000 eyes. Um, but uh, anything, guys, I should have asked you about the paper, the research that uh, I want to make sure I just give a rounded full view. I think we talked about the paper, the methods, the findings. We talked about some of the shortcomings, the criticisms. Actually, I want to go back to my last question, and then you tell me if anything I missed. Nick, you were telling me if you had a million dollars, the study would have been different. What would have changed if you had a million dollars? Oh, well, I mean, I wouldn't have done exactly this study. There's <laughs> a lot of study. I have a lot of wish list studies. But um, we were actually going through, <laughs> I was just brainstorming a few today to assess the lipid energy model. And there's a lot of tests we could do to, you know, actually test that this model is real. So for example, tracer studies, we don't know that there's an increased, you know, LPL mediated VLDL turnover. We could test that. We could test the um, levels of various LPL regulators and complexes, these proteins and GPTLs. And if you want to read a really cool paper, Ren Zhang just came out with one in progress and lipid research on the ANGPTL348 model. So for metabolism nerds, it's such a good read. Dave, Dave can confirm. Um, we could do, you know, experiments to see just how reproducible this phenotype is. Take people who are lean and see if we can make them into lean mass hyperresponders. Take people who are lean mass hyperresponders and see if we can manipulate their LDL levels by making them exercise more and less. You could do the reverse of that, not the gym hypothesis, like I was just trying, but the couch hypothesis. If you take lean mass hyperresponders and put 20 pounds on them and make them just, you know, sit around, does their LDL go down? And then, of course, there's a risk trial that Dave's doing. I mean, there's no end to the avenues of research in this respect. And those are just human studies, a lot you could do in mice. But uh, yeah, this, this study was just to get the conversation going, and I think it achieved that aim. You certainly did. Uh, Dave, any questions I needed to ask you guys that I forgot? 
No, but I, you know, I do want to add something and I think it might be a good capstone to this that kind of goes off of what Nick's saying. I have been saying this a long time and I think I feel stronger about it than I ever have before. You know, while I can't say that I know for sure, you know, where our existing hypotheses are going to land or what our predictions are going to show, particularly with the energy model and so forth, I will stand behind this chatty and I hope we're chatting again in three years, five years, et cetera. I do believe this phenotype, lean mass hyperresponders in particular, people with this extraordinary triad, I think they are gonna teach us a lot, not just about this fat adapted context, but about metabolism overall. I think that there's, they're going to be an enormously powerful group of individuals for where we can get uh, more scientific discovery. And that, that's something I'd love to you know, unearth again uh, in a few years time. And uh, we'll see if, we'll see if you agree with me on that one. I probably will, or I won't. What do I know? I'm a reporter. I'm just a host. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for, for spending some time. Uh, as always, thanks for supporting Healthcare Unfiltered. Thanks, thanks so for much. Having us. Okay, folks, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you found this as a helpful uh, episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion about the recent paper. And, you know, uh, I hope, you know, as we move along, I'm going to bring other folks on the show to talk about diet, cholesterol, keto, and also maybe, again, they might have uh, opposing views to this paper. But ultimately, it's where this paper made a last splash on social media. And for this, I thought uh, we can discuss it in a longer format, a longer version, as opposed to just simply Twitter and so on. So thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting Healthcare Unfiltered. Let me know how I'm doing. You can always direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, or you can send me an email to Shadi Nabhan, OO at Outlook.com. You can visit the website, ShadiNabhan.com and message me there. And as always, I am uh, very grateful for your feedback and for what you tell me. If you're a loyal listener, just direct message me and I will send you one of these famous podcast t-shirts that you always hear about. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with one of the sayings by Isaac Newton. Plato is my friend. Aristotle is my friend. But my greatest friend is truth. Until next time, take care.